blanket over there in the corner? Absolutely. It's a little bit chilly in the other room. It's I know. We're trying to like snuggle blanket. Can't seem to make equilibrium. In order to make this cool, we have to make the whole house cool. All right. That's all right. I can still hear it. I have another blanket. Another one. Okay. Thank you. All right. We're ready, friends. We're ready. Protect Mark so the Cody's can hear you back there. All right, let's pray, guys. Okay. Dear Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day, and I thank you for your word, which gives us light, not only for life, Lord, but uh, the light of your revelation, that we can know the true and the living God, and we can worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we pray that that would be uh, the blessing of our worship now as we uh, come to uh, just hear the truth, Lord, about what you did on this day, 504 years ago, Lord, what that means to us as a church, and uh, Lord, I pray by your spirit that uh, the lessons drawn out of this, Lord, will just continue to direct us in our obedient following after you, Lord. So just ask your blessing on our time this hour, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 You know, there's always something thrilling, at least I think so, whenever we hear about the dramatic uh, freeing of a person who is held captive against their will by some type of enemy. Um, you know, we love it when we hear of accounts of, of SWAT teams coming in and swooping in and, and neutralizing that enemy and freeing the hostage. I mean, it's always an, uh, an exciting thing. Anytime we hear that anyone is being held hostage, it's something that, that, that pierces all of our hearts. Um, you know, even just hearkening back to what Dustin talked about last week when he, he talked about how, as people, we love our freedom, right? Um, especially Americans. We love this idea of being able to go in to free those that are in bondage. We do it to other countries, and we clearly do it when that happens to our own people here. And 504 years ago, as we're talking about today, on Reformation Day, on October 31st, 1517, uh, one of the greatest acts of hostage liberation took place in a German village called Wittenberg. And it wasn't a SWAT team that came in and did the liberation. It turned out to be a 34-year-old Augustinian monk. And what that man did, this man named Martin Luther, he came in and the Lord used him to free not a person, but something that all of us hold near and dear to our hearts, all of us who claim the name of Jesus as our Lord, and that's the Christian gospel. The Lord used Martin Luther to free the gospel out of the dark ages that it was plummeted in. And so, because this is such an important day in the church calendar for all of us as God's people, um, I'm going to take a little different tack today and not spending as much time in a line-by-line -line study of the Word, but I want, to, I want to give a history of what it is that actually led to the event that happened today. And I think it's really important for us to know this, and as we go through it, I'm praying that the Lord will use it to, again, encourage us, to strengthen our understanding of what it is that we believe, and also to see the error in what still resides out in the world that people hold on to that we have the remedy for. So with that brief introduction, um, let me kind of set the stage a little bit to try to make sense of this, my, my uh, use of, of a hostage situation as regards to the gospel. Uh, it is a bit of hyperbole, but I'm hoping it just gets across the idea of, of what really transpired 1517. Um, at this time in history, the Roman Catholic Church was the main visible representative of Christianity on the earth. And sadly, though, they it grew in influence and power over the years leading up to the 1500s, um, but in a corrupt way. It didn't hold true to the gospel that was revealed by our Lord and by the apostles. Instead of focusing on the proclamation of the gospel and seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
it actually went opposite that. It actually became, under the leadership of ungodly popes, it focused instead on earthly treasures and on earthly power. And over time, it did exactly what Jesus accused Peter of doing when Peter challenged Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. If you remember that account in Matthew 16, Jesus is giving the apostles his first proclamation on that he is going to Jerusalem, and that in Jerusalem he is going to be killed by the scribes and the Pharisees. And when he makes that revelation to him, Peter takes the Lord Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And at that moment, the Lord Jesus, in response to Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for, and this is the key point, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that's exactly where the visible Christian church was at this time in the manner of the Roman Catholic guys. They didn't, at this point in history, they didn't care about the purposes of God. They became so corrupted that they were going after worldly treasures and using worldly means to attain them. So as a result of not attending to those priorities of prayer and of the ministry of the word like they should have been, they neglected all of that. They allowed false doctrine to slowly be integrated into the church teaching. And as a result, the people were kept in darkness. There was biblical illiteracy abounded and superstition abounded. And this unholy trinity is what, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church at this time used to control their people. They lorded over them in this way by keeping them truly in the dark, in the dark ages. And through that whole time, they suppressed the light of the gospel. Now, what they did was, is they, in one of the ways, one of the tools that they used for this control, this, uh, the way they corrupted the folks, was they had this, um, this sale of, for the self-serving purposes of what they called indulgences. Now, the indulgence and indulgence is the key issue of, of this day, of Reformation Day. And I'll try to work this out in a way that all of us can understand and we see how it all ties in. But before I explain what indulgences are, um, I think it's important for us to understand, first and foremost, what the Roman Catholic Church understands and teaches about salvation. And as I work through this, I'm hoping that you're going to be thinking how this is different than what we normally preach from this place every time we gather. And you will see the distinction. And it's important for us to know the distinction. Because there are many that are trying to blur that understanding and trying to make it sound like that it's all the same. It's not. The truth of the gospel is, is, needs to be proclaimed clearly because people's salvation depends on it. Now, in Roman Catholic theology... This is important. No person is ever declared righteous before God unless that person is truly inherently righteous. That means, a.k.a., they must be perfect in order to be declared righteous in God's sight. It's only then that a person can be allowed into heaven. There's no concept in Catholic theology that allows for a person to simply be declared righteous, even though they still remain in a sinful state. Such a declaration, they say, is a legal fiction. They say it's, it's legal talk, but it's, it's made up. It doesn't make any sense. This is their argument. They would say, you can't declare a person just when he's not inherently just. According to Rome, a person can only be declared righteous when he or she in, in and of themselves is perfectly righteous. And it's only then that they can permanently enter into the, the immediate dwelling, the presence of the Lord. Now, Jesus being fully man and fully God, he acted in perfect accord with the Father's will, right? He fulfilled all righteousness. And as a result of his perfect life and his perfect vicarious death on our behalf, they rightly hold that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended directly into heaven. There was no sidebar. He didn't have to stop anywhere. He immediately went into the presence of the Father. They also hold the same is true for many of what I kind of dubbed the all-star saints. 
All right? These are the ones that, um, that they say by their extreme holy lives and by their personal sacrifice, they earned the merit to enter into heaven just like Jesus without any stopping, without there being any hindrance between them entering immediately into heaven. So, for example, they would say that would be Mother Mary, that would be John the Baptist, that would be Peter and Paul, even saints like Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. There are choice people in their understanding of things that have, that have by God's grace, merited the ability to enter directly into heaven upon death. But... For most of the multitude besides those all-stars, when they die, they don't have that same promise. They will no doubt die with their soul still corrupted by sin. And that in turn is going to render them bankrupt in the eyes of God without the righteousness that they absolutely need to enter into heaven. Now, so there, so that's, that's a bad news story, right? And as much as that is, the Roman Catholic Church does have a remedy. They, they have a, a, a certain sense of hope that they can give to the Catholic who dies in that unfortunate state. Um, in order to become righteous so that heaven can be accessed, each sin-filled soul has to go through a process of purging. They have to go through a process where their sin is actually Expiated is actually burned, is actually paid for before they can enter into heaven. It's a process where their soul is made perfect so that they can be declared perfectly righteous. And the place that you go, that they declare in their doctrine that you go when you die in a state of sin, is a place called purgatory. Now, purgatory by some has been called the divine waiting room. Uh, I refer to it as the rest stop on the highway to heaven. But in the way they teach it, it's really not a rest stop because it's not a place of comfort. Uh, it's a place of purgatory, of purging. It's a place where you are enduring, truly, the, the punishment of God, the wrath of God in, in, in burning away your sin until purification happens. And the insidious thing about this is that no one knows how long they're going to be there. There's no counter. There's, so you don't know if your loved one's going to be there for a day, a week, a month, a year, a millennium. Now, in Roman Catholicism, when a child is baptized, the child first is born into this world dead in his sins. We know that from the scriptures, and they affirm that. But, and the reason, if you ever wonder why a Roman Catholic rushes to have the baby baptized, is because they have to get that baby in a state of grace. And the way that they get that baby in a state of grace is through the, the sacrament of baptism. They understand that baptism actually infuses into the soul of that child the righteousness of Christ. That if that child should die, that child will immediately be entered into heaven. But the moment as that child grows, and the, and the moment that child sins, they make shipwreck of their faith. And that soul is now at odds with God again. They are no longer in a justified state. They are no longer righteous. As a result, they have created then, so you have baptism is the first plank of justification. Then they have what's called the second plank of justification, which is the sacrament of penance. You've heard of penance before. So this is the whole idea that the, that the Catholic sinner has to go to the priest and confess their sin and then do an act of restitution, an act of penance, in order to pay for that sin so that, that can be, they can be absolved of that. And some of that, 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 what they call a meritorious work, that means it's got value in God's sight, that means that they will be asked possibly by the priest to say, three are our fathers and three Hail Marys. Or perhaps to go make restitution if you did something bad to someone to make that right. Or perhaps to pay alms is what they would call, meaning giving money to the poor, to those in need. These are all, in their scheme, meritorious works that actually 
add value before the Lord in making you righteous. So while you're living, you can go to confession as often as possible in order to try to keep yourself in this right relationship with the Lord. And you can tell just by even the way I'm describing this, that sounds like a heavy work. Because if we all really, truly tried to hold to this, I think we'd be in confession 23 hours and 59 minutes a day. Because it's nonstop. We know ourselves. And so that's actually what they put on the Catholic who really, truly follows Catholic doctrine. That is an important part. You need to keep yourself in this place before the Lord of constantly paying penance for your sin. But if you die in a state where your sin is still, where your soul is still corrupted by sin, you have you can't go to confession anymore, and thus the soul is sent to purgatory for this finishing work that happens. Now, it's at this point that we can now explore how the the corrupted Roman Catholic Church during the Middle Ages they used the selling of indulgences as a tool not only to keep the good news hostage from the people but also to bilk them, to bilk the people of their hard-earned money for their own self-serving purposes. Now, unlike the times that we live in today, where increasing pe people in increasing number really don't even acknowledge that God exists, or, and the, that the idea of a holy God is actually watching over them, that's more and more becoming uh, something that's anathema to, to, uh, to, the, uh, to the mindset of, of people in this day and age. They don't, they don't even want to think about that. But during the Middle Ages, there was an understanding of a God who saw overall. They had a true fear of the wrath of God. And as a result, Oh, so as they begin to think about that, and then they hear this teaching from the church about these, uh, this place called purgatory where their loved ones are being purified in anguish, that would put such a burden on the people. They have their loved ones, and they have no idea how long they're going to be in this place of punishment. How long are they going to suffer for their sin? And so to assuage this burden, the Roman Catholic Church comes up with a doctrine where they would sell what's called an indulgence. Now, an indulgence is a holy tool. Think of it just like that. It's a holy tool or an instrument that the church offers to the people for money that allows them to pay for this indulgence as restitution for their loved one's sins. So they can go to the church and if they have their father supposedly burning in purification and purgatory by paying a certain amount of money they can get from the church a statement that says your payment has just taken off two years of suffering within purgatory for your dead father. So you can see that almost this it's an, it's an insidious manipulation of the hearts and minds of people and also a works righteousness as if you can pay to somehow diminish the, the wrath of God upon sin. The way it worked was this. Mother Church, which is the way that it saw itself, and the Pope as its leader, they were the official representatives of God on earth, right? They are the vicar of Christ, is actually what the Pope is called. He's the representative of Christ. And in that capacity, the church was given two responsibilities, two main responsibilities. One, they were given the keys of the kingdom. You've heard of this, right? We get this out of the scriptures. The Lord giving to Peter and then to all the apostles the keys of the kingdom. Well, the church sees that as, as through Peter, who is the first Pope in their understanding, they've been, the church has been given the keys of the kingdom so that whatever the church fixes in heaven, or fixes on earth is fixed in heaven, and whatever they loose on earth is loosed in heaven. All that basically means is that whatever they say is bound. They have God's authority behind them, and whatever they say goes. So, if they say, your loved one has got two years knocked off, you can count on it. It sets up there the church as being this um, institution that you can trust that is speaking for God. 
Then the second thing that they also had was that they are the stewards of what was what they call the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit is the, get this, it's the accumulated excess righteousness, not only of our Lord Jesus, not only of all the apostles, but all of the all-star saints that followed after them. This is the excess righteousness that they all had that was beyond anything that they needed for access to heaven. The church now has this store of their righteousness in their keeping. And they have it so that it can be used to be doled out to those of us who could never live up to the all-star level that absolutely need that righteousness if we are ever going to find ourselves in the presence of God. So when a person came to the church to purchase the indulgence, all right, the indulgence was that was the way that, you, that that of the transfer of that merit. Whenever they came to the church to purchase the indulgence, not only were they purchasing an amount of merit that could be applied to their loved one's account, but they also received that authoritative binding from the church that says, "Yes, this is this is not some game we're playing. This is true. This is happening by your payment. Your loved one is is losing time." in purgatory. And so by way of this transaction, that purchaser of this indulgence could walk away feeling that they were actually relieved. They, could, they actually did something for their loved one. So you could see how the people would flock to this. And they also felt good because it actually, they, they felt like that they were actively helping their loved one make their journey into the heavenly realm. And I will say, just as an aside, the Catholic Church still does this. You have, if you have not heard of it, you have your, there are things called mass cards. You can go to the church and you can have a mass. This is their form of, of what we do here in terms of worship, but it's a re-sacrificing of the Lord in their schema. You can have a mass said for your loved one for the very purpose of reducing their time in purgatory. So it's an, it's an insidious uh, uh, cloaking of the of the good news that God has given us. Yeah. But that, that going to the side, we move on. So now that we understand what an indulgence is, let's take a look at how is it that indulgence has played an important part on this day in 1517 that we call Reformation Day. Why is this day so important? At the time, the church was being led by a pope by the name of Leo X. Just before he became Pope, his immediate predecessor was a man by the name of Julius II. This guy was dubbed the warrior Pope. Now if you think about what a Pope should be doing, he should be leading his flock in the way of the shepherd that we all follow, the Lord Jesus. This warrior Pope used the church as a fighting army to take over lands. They said that he spilled so much blood in the accumulation of lands for the church, it was sickening. So this is no man that had heavenly mindset. He had nothing but global or worldly desires. And in addition to that, he was a very frugal man on top of it, and he had this big aspiration that he wanted to build a church of monumental proportions in Rome what would ultimately become St. Peter's Basilica. And he starts this church, he starts the funding of it, and he actually lays the footers to this church building. But then, Pope Julius dies, and Leo comes into play. Leo, and this is even by Roman Catholic historians, they say that these two guys are two of the most corrupt popes in their line. They even admit this, they know it. This guy Leo comes into play, he is totally opposite of Julius in terms of his ability to handle things. He's actually a spendthrift. He spends money like there's no tomorrow. To the extent that he drives the Catholic Church almost to the point of bankruptcy. To the point where they can't even do the work anymore in St. Peter's Basilica. Those footers that are there, they're being grown over by weeds. It sits in disrepair for years. So. All of this is obviously causing pressure on this man, Leo. So to remedy this, he's got to tap into some resources in some way. 
So he enters into a relationship with this guy, another character named Albert, Prince Albert of Mainz. Prince Albert of Mainz is this guy that um, he wants to be a bishop. In fact, in the church, in order to be a bishop, you have to be a member of the, of the clergy. You have to be trained in the things of God, right? You can't just have a common man to become a bishop. Well, this guy, Albert, he ends up buying a bishopric. Not only did he buy one, he bought two, and he was ambitious enough that he wanted a third. Because what this means is, is control and power for this guy. So this guy has this, uh, this bent. He wants this. And um, what's interesting about the way that he did this is that, the, and the church allowed him to do that, he actually is in the process committing what is called the sin of simony. You guys ever heard of the sin of simony? It's taken from the book of Acts, chapter 8, where the apostles are at work doing the work of the ministry, and actually the Lord is using them to heal people. In, in a mighty way, the Holy Spirit is healing people left and right through the apostles. And there's a man at that time called Simon Magus who sees what the apostles are doing. And he's enthralled by this. He, he, he can't believe the power that's being displayed. And what he does, he goes to Peter, and he offers, he wants to buy the power of the Holy Spirit so he could do the same thing. And the apostle Peter tells him, may your money burn with you. He says, you, do, you never seek to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what this man was doing. That's, that's what the sin of simony is. You're purchasing a... a a holy office with worldly means. And the church allowed this. So this Leo gets into a relationship with him, and he takes him on, and he actually sells him this bishopric for 10,000 gold pieces. But this guy, Albert, can't pay for it, so he's got to get a loan in order to pay for it. So he pays the church. But then this is the scheme that they come up with. Leo gives Albert permission to sell indulgences in the areas that he controls. <coughs> What's going to happen is that this guy will be able to sell indulgences to the people, and there's going to be a 50-50 split. Albert will be able to take his 50% and pay off his loan, and the other 50% is going to be a constant flow of money to the church so Leo can build St. Peter's Basilica. I mean, this is corruption beyond anything that we can, you know, it's, it sounds like it's something happening today. Yeah. Yeah. And yet this is what's going on. So that's why it's so important. I, I know I labor through this, and it, and it may be dry, but it's so important for us to understand why is Reformation Day so important? This is what people were living under in terms of the non-proclamation of the gospel. They thought you can purchase your way to God. They totally held the gospel hostage by the selling of these indulgences. And then what they did is, in more cities, they hired this man called Tetzel, Johann Tetzel. Now this guy's a marketing genius. He, his approach is this. He, um, he, he goes into the town with, with the pomp and ceremony of the Roman Catholic Church, right? Because the people, of course, they're biblically illiterate. They're filled with uh, all kinds of fears. And they... They, they look at the church in, an, in, an, in a fearful and, and reverent way. They actually have respect for this church because they're looking to them as the hope that they might somehow make it to heaven through this church. So Tetzel comes in as a representative of the Roman Catholic Church with all of this pomp and ceremony. He summons the people together within a village, and he stands up and he gives a declaration about these indulgences. And what he does is he preys on their emotions by telling them chilling stories of loved ones that are suffering in this place of purgatory. And you can see, I mean, we have that same thing happening these days, even with the, the health and wealth creatures. You know, for those that actually tug at your heartstrings in some way to, in order to bilk money from you. And so he sold them on this idea that they, by by buying these indulgences, could end the misery of their loved ones in purgatory. And even beyond that, when I said he's a marketing genius, he even had a jingle 
He said, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That, that was a thing that went around, and people knew that, and they heard it, and they're thinking, wow, you know, if I can just buy this thing, I can help relieve my parents, my loved ones, suffering in purgatory. So this is the context. This is what, what is happening. This is what Martin Luther sees. Martin Luther, at this time, he is a professor at the university in Wittenberg. He was an Augustinian monk, and then he grew, he, became, he, he got a doctorate, and he's teaching at the, at the university in Wittenberg. He sees this going on. Now, one thing you got to understand is the background about Luther. Luther was a man who, he was tortured by the holiness and the justice and the wrath of God. I mean, he took so seriously what the scripture declared about God. And as he, as he embarked on his pursuit of trying to please this God, it led him to madness. He knew the standard of righteousness was beyond anything he could ever attain. But by the church's teaching, he could only do what they gave him to do. So you know what he did? He spent hours in confession, like I was just telling you. He, he, got, he was so bent on confession he drove his superiors nuts. They told him, Martin, go back to your room. Relax. I mean, he, he was just so filled with guilt about everything. And he would confess even the smallest of infraction that he could think of that he was doing. He was just totally bound up by this. He got to the point where um, he actually even, in this day and age, you hear of people cutting themselves, right? I mean, it's a, it's a horrible, abusive thing that they do to themselves. Well, in a sense, Luther was doing something similar. He was taking a whip, and he would whip himself in order to feel the pain so that he was somehow killing this desire to sin, killing any sinful thought that he had. He was using it in a physical way. It was torturous. And he, and he also tried to live an, a life of an ascetic, of just complete self-denial. And he found he could do nothing to vanquish, to, to suppress that sinful tendency that was constantly in him. But then, by the grace of God, he was asked to teach at the seminary on the book of Romans. And as he's studying through the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit opens his eyes to the truth of the gospel. He sees that it's the just that shall live by faith. And all of a sudden, it even, he even admits it, he said, it's as if he was reborn. He had the new birth happen in his mind and in his heart. But the truth of the gospel finally broke through. The church had become a black hole, if you will, that prevented the light of the gospel from escaping. And for people to be released from their sin and transformed by it. And now... As God opened his eyes to it, he saw this as that opportunity. This has to be shared with everyone. Everyone needs to know this. And so the way that he did this, in this particular case, is where the 95 theses come in. We hear about Martin Luther, right? And he goes up and he hammers this list of 95 statements onto the door of the church at Wittenberg. What's that all about? Well, what he did was, on those 95 statements were statements of protest that he wrote against this whole thing of indulgences, what the church was doing. But what's interesting is that at this point in his understanding of doctrine, he was still growing. He, he's, he's, he's not eventually where he ends up being. He's still in a, in a uh, I guess, uh, not an infantile state, but he's, he's still maturing in his, in his understanding. So. He wasn't necessarily infuriated by the doctrine of, of purgatory or even indulgences themselves. What he was so mad about was the way the church was hawking that indulgence to the people, basically making them think that they can somehow pay their way into righteousness with God. He said that, you know, he looked at what Tetzel was doing and he said, that, you know, he, he hated the fact that it was an exercise in emotional manipulation. 
And it, it just made this selling of indulgences nothing more than a, a crass financial transaction. That's all it was. Now, Luther, he loves the Lord. He cared for the people that he was serving. And so he acted against what Tetzel was doing by nailing these 95 statements to the church door. Now, there's another important fact that's not always known. It's important to know that he did not intend this to start a revolution. He did not want to turn the church over, in a sense, and start his own new movement. That's, a lot of people put that on him, but that was not his intent at all. He was a company guy, as I refer to him. He loved the church. He served the church. He gave his life to the church. And, but he wanted to see this error corrected. And so we know that this is true because of the way that he wrote, wrote these statements. He wrote them in the language of Latin. No one in that village would have understood what he wrote. Latin was the language of the academia, of the university, of, those, of the theologian. His purpose in putting those 95 statements on that door was to spark debate. He wanted to get a conversation started that said, look, this is wrong, what's happening here. We are better than this. We need to re-examine this and, and, and make a change so that it serves the people properly according to God's word. But you know, the Lord had other plans. <laughs> he took what Luther and his... Uh, his drive in this moment, he took that and he used it as the match that lit the flame that ended up becoming what we call today the Protestant Reformation. Just like he did in the book of Acts at Pentecost. He started with something small and it exploded. And that's exactly what Martin Luther did on this day, 504 years ago, by the nailing of those theses to the church door. It was the event that God would use to free the light of the gospel from its dark ages captivity and thereby free multitudes from their bondage in that so that they can come to the light of Christ. So that they, that every person, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as the scripture tells us, can come to Christ because the gospel was once again let free. It was no longer held hostage by this church. And so what's neat is that God has so ordered that we at this time happen to actually be looking at a portion of scripture that the Lord used to do this work in Luther's heart. We've been in Romans 3. So we're just going to finish up today with just a very brief overview, starting in verse 20 of Romans 3. And having given you all of what the church did to corrupt the gospel, let's see what God's word says that shows us the truth about the gospel and again reawakens all of our hearts Amen. to this awesome news that he's given us. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to kind of do this in very quick fashion. Verse 20, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, a reminder that no amount of work, no amount of payment on our part can make us just and right in God's eyes. Is it absolutely impossible? That's the bad news, right? We always start with bad news. But then, verse 21 and verses 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested from the law, apart from the law. And then verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's incredible news. The righteousness that we need to be accepted by God has been revealed to us in the gospel message and can be received by us, not by perpetual confession, not by whipping ourselves because we have sinful thoughts, not by giving alms, and not by buying indulgences for anyone, ourselves or loved ones. That righteousness comes to us by faith, by trusting in the Lord Jesus. Then verse 23, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's a mouthful, but let's just kind of 
take it quickly apart here. First, that means that this truth applies to everyone. Both the bad news about the fact that we cannot do anything to make ourselves right before God, and the good news that no matter who you are, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you can receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. Amen. Second, it shows us that we receive righteousness as a generous and loving gift from God. Not something we pay for. You don't pay for a gift. We've talked about that before. A gift is given from someone to someone else because that person loves them. They, they don't ask them for money back. They don't expect them to pay for that gift. It is a gift of love. And that's what the Lord does for us in our salvation. He gives us the gift of Christ's righteousness so that we could stand rightly before Him. He does that for us. And thirdly, we see the great value of this gift and the legitimacy of this gift. The righteousness we receive, it wasn't stolen, and it wasn't given to us illegitimately, right? You know, humans can do that, right? I could steal something from Macy's and give it to my wife and say, hey, I love you, honey, <laughs> but that's illegitimate. It's, it's not a genuine gift that has merit to it. It was through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, just as the scripture says here. That means that Jesus genuinely paid for our sins by shedding his blood on behalf as a price to satisfy, propitiate, that's what that word means, to satisfy God's justice. He paid for it with his blood. And the gift of righteousness is given to us freely, but in no way is it free in reality, it was the most costly gift ever because of who gave his life for us, the Lord Jesus. In the second half of verse 25 and, and, and verse 26, it says, This, what I just declared, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, in the gospel... The Lord reveals two things about himself. He reveals that he doesn't wink at sin. Just because he puts up with it for long periods of time does not mean that he doesn't care about it or he's not going to deal with it. On the contrary, the gospel reveals that the justice, that justice will always be served. And if he pardons anyone, he will make sure that the sins of that pardoned one are fully paid for by his son. Nothing is ever just swept under the rug in God's eyes. And then the second thing that he reveals about himself in this is that he reveals that we have no part in our salvation and that we can never take credit for it. He is the one who justly judges our sin by pouring his wrath on our sin bearer. And our sin bearer is who? Christ. The Lord Jesus. He is the one who took the Lord's, uh, the Father's wrath. He, and then he justly declares us as justified in his sight by robing us with the righteousness of Christ that we all need, that we could never earn. Then verse 27, he asks that question, then what becomes of boasting? The answer, it's excluded. There's no boasting. We can't boast in anything other than Christ himself. That's, he's our boast, but not, not ourselves. And then lastly, verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I mean, that is the greatest news we could ever receive and it's the greatest news that we could ever give to anyone else. That to make them, to, in order to become right in God's eyes, he has done it all. He's done it all for us. He is the, the just one and the justifier of those who trust in his son. That's why we do this every week. That's why we come together and we worship him for everything that he's done for us. Because we had nothing to bring to the table. Amen. He did everything Amen. for us. Amen. That's the glorious message of the Reformation. Hallelujah. Praise God. Father, thank you that, uh, Lord, in annals of history, Father, you have called people at just the right time to do the work that you ordained them to do for the purposes of furthering your kingdom. And we recognize in this day what you did through Luther and the many that followed him, Lord, to free the gospel so that we might be beneficiaries of that freedom, Lord. 
Mm. It's because of that work, Lord. You foreordained that to happen so that in this day and age we could hear your voice speaking to us through the gospel. Mm. So thank you for that great work. And we do pray for the continued reformation of your church, Lord. Ways that it has gone astray, Lord, please continue to raise men to stand on your word and help us, Lord, in this little body here to be faithful to what you have proclaimed and to be faithful to follow after you, regardless of what our external shows, Lord, that our trust is fully in you. And we thank you again, Lord, for saving us, for giving us the righteousness of your Son, the Lord Jesus, through the gift of faith. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Supper referenda. <laughs> Amen. We're going to do a communion. So I, I know everybody's been. When you tell them they need to be guilty and then they can pay to. All right. No. You, I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> I know everybody's been sitting for a while, so we will though, quickly, remember um, the Lord through communion and proclaim his death until he comes. Um, and uh, Tim and Mark are preparing the elements right now. Um, you guys go ahead and uh, Tim, you guys go ahead and start passing them out if you, if you like, if it's ready. Um, Two minutes. two minutes. Okay. Well then, I'll, I'll preach a two-minute mini-sermon. <laughs> so, as a, um, I, I love the stories of, of faith throughout the scriptures, and there's some um, that really resonate with me because I love being a dad, <laughs> and and one of those um, uh, accounts um, is Abraham um, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, um, his son of promise. Um, and with, there's so much truth there, but my mind is absolutely blown by the faith of Abraham. Um, that he would obey God um, to the point where he would take in his hand the knife and his son is bound um, and he's running a light fire to this burnt offering unto God. And as he raises his hand, God calls to Abraham through the angel of the Lord, tells him to stop. You know? um, and Abraham, before he was in this moment, had answered his son Isaac, who was with him, and says, Dad, so we're going to make this offering. You know, you got the fire, you got the knife. You, where's the offering? And Abraham said that. God would provide for himself the sacrifice. Um, and as we know that God interrupts uh, Abraham and there's a ram caught in the thicket and Abraham and Isaac worship God together in this sacrifice. But God had tested Abraham's faith. Um, and I love it what it says in the scriptures. Multiple times it's repeated because of the power of it that Abraham believed God and it was imputed, it was accounted, it was gifted to him as righteousness. The just shall live by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But it's that very thing in which God is pleased with. And our righteousness as a result of the faith that we place in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, um, that we hear it from God's word alone and for his glory alone. Um, and we remember him in this sacrifice. The scripture teaches us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Uh, yeah, go ahead and start passing it around. The scripture tells us that um, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, that he took bread and he broke it. Um, and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner, he took of the cup, 
the blood of grapes. Um, and he gave it to his disciples. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what a privilege it is, and I'm so appreciative of Mark's thorough um, account, you know, of the Reformation, you know, and on this particular holiday, holy day, that, that we can celebrate that the light of the gospel once again broke through as it has in each of our lives. And what a privilege it is for us to not have to go to a priest, that we can go directly to Christ, and that we can come boldly before the throne. What a privilege that it is. He bought that for us on the cross, and we remember him, and we proclaim his death. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the faithfulness of your son, our Lord Jesus, Jesus who was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, being highly glorified, seated at the right hand of the Father, our Redeemer, that we can come boldly before, because through faith in your work, on that cross, you have made us righteous. And we are grateful people. Let's partake together. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Hallelujah. 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 Thank <laughs> you.